0: Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's December 2023. Outbreaks associated with duodenoscopes have received a lot of attention over the past few years, both within the healthcare field and in the broader community and lay press. And while the risk associated with duodenoscopes may be particularly high due to their complex design, there is also risk associated with other types of endoscopes, as evidenced by several papers recently published in ITCHY. I've asked the authors of two of these papers that were published in this month's issue of ITCHY to join me today for a discussion of outbreaks and pseudo-outbreaks associated with bronchoscopes. My guests today are Dr. Deepesh Solanki, who is a former Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, and a current Infectious Diseases Fellow at the Massachusetts General and Brigham and Women's Hospitals in Boston, Massachusetts, Dr. Kieran Perkins, a Commander in the U.S. Public Health Service and the Response Team Lead in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Anu Milani, the Medical Director of Hospital Epidemiology, Special Pathogens, and Antimicrobial Stewardship at Trinity Health, Ann Arbor, and an adjunct clinical professor of internal medicine and epidemiology at the University of Michigan Medical School and School of Public Health in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having
2: us. Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for having me.
3: Yep.
0: Thanks, Dave. Looking forward to this. So before we dive into a discussion of your papers, I think it could be helpful to talk for just a minute. More broadly about outbreaks and pseudo outbreaks. So, what is meant by those two terms?
2: I'm happy to take a stab at this. So, in general terms, an outbreak is typically defined as a cluster of infections that are associated either by time, place, type, or exposure that is occurring at a higher rate than expected. And the definition for pseudo outbreak, distinguishing that from outbreak, is typically A similar cluster of situations that might have similar associations, but the outcome is not necessarily an overt infection, but rather colonization or asymptomatic
0: presence of a given pathogen. Thanks. And we'll, I'm sure, hear more about that as the discussion progresses over the next few minutes. So, the importance of identifying preventing outbreaks is fairly obvious. It allows us to avoid involvement of additional people, thereby minimizing morbidity and mortality and resource utilization. But why is it important to identify and prevent pseudo-outbreaks, which by definition aren't really associated with patient infections or bad patient outcomes?
2: So, patients involved in pseudo-outbreaks specifically referring to the definition of pseudo outbreak as sort of detection of asymptomatic colonization, identifying and preventing these pseudo outbreaks are still important because even though patients may only be colonized, the presence of such pathogens would indicate transmission of disease. And so in the case of sort of bronchoscope associated outbreaks could represent transmission of potentially infectious pathogens through equipment contamination or lapses in IPC standard practices. And if these issues are not addressed, those same breakdowns can lead to ongoing transmission with the same or another pathogen that could ultimately manifest as a
0: true symptomatic infection. Sometimes, I guess, these pseudo outbreaks are don't actually touch the patient, but they can be due to contamination of a specimen in the laboratory. But again, it helps you identify opportunities for quality improvement in your laboratory processing or whatever the cause of that pseudo outbreak might be and and potentially reduce the risk of patients being inappropriately treated or inappropriately being diagnosed with infections that they don't really have. So I think lots of good reasons why we want to identify and, and prevent those pseudo outbreaks in addition to true outbreaks. So, Anu, let's talk about the paper that you and your colleagues published this month in Itchy. So, your paper describes what was eventually determined to be a bronchoscopy associated pseudo-outbreak. How did this cluster of cases initially come to the attention of the infection control team?
3: This was back in 2019. It seems like a long, long time ago, but it was pre-pandemic. And I, I remember it because I was in our IP suite, and one of the infection preventionists mentioned to me that there was four or five cases of Mycobacterium mucogenicum, something that we have not really seen before, coming from bronchoscopies and BALs. And she asked me about that. She said, that looks kind of funny. I said, that's definitely funny. That, that doesn't seem right. The first thing we did is we actually called the microbiology lab and talked to our lab partners and just asked them if they were seeing any uptakes of this particular type of Mycobacterium and the quick answer on that was no, just, just in terms of BALs. That day, we called our engineering colleagues, we called the endoscopy leadership, and we went down to endoscopy suite. So that was actually very helpful to go see, especially kind of with a multidisciplinary team. And with that, we also had some clinicians, uh, one of the pulmonologists accompanying us. So we actually took a look at. They had nine bronchoscopes that were used, but we took a look at steps around processing, high-level disinfection, pre-cleaning, you know, sort of the manual parts, testing, where they were getting stored, how they are getting transported. And then we also took a look at how they actually did some of the procedures. And one of the areas that was of concern was the use of non-sterile ice and water from an ice machine in the unit but also the use of, they had sterile water syringes that they used. And, and as I came to understand this from my pulmonology partners, this is sometimes they would use this for, if they experienced bleeding while doing a biopsy, they had this on hand. And, and the idea was that this would be cooled and then they would try to do this to try to cause a vasoconstriction and reduce bleeding. But what we saw was they were using these capped they were supposed to be capped sort of uh, syringes and they're putting it in this ice sort of water basin. They were actually uncapping the syringe and they're uncapping it because the thought by some of the nursing staff was, and this was just kind of dripped over time, is that they would have easy access to this should the pulmonologist need it and they would really have to uncap it and wait for that. So we had some concerns. We looked at sort of the maintenance logs and and the audits that really kind of looked like everything from a processing and cleaning standpoint seem to be happening. But right away, we had some concerns about the way kind of non-sterile ice and water were being used.
0: So then based on that initial suspicion and sort of not finding any other smoking guns in the Bronx suite, how did you proceed from there to confirm your suspicions or to interrupt any further cases? Right away,
3: this stuff was happening in real time. And I believe it was on a Wednesday because not knowing exactly what, what was happening, we made a decision to halt bronchoscopies, at least for a couple of days till we sorted things out. That can always be a difficult decision to do, especially when you yeah, have patients patient but not knowing anything at that point in time, we thought that that was actually kind of prudent to do. That year and those years, like right prior, we were developing a comprehensive water management plan, especially our work around Legionella surveillance and prevention. So we actually had the ability to get some environmental samples. We did some water sampling. We did the potable sort of water in the sinks and then in the procedure rooms. And then we also sampled the ice machine and the ice machine water. And then we decided that we would restrict water and that we would only use sterile ice if sterile ice was needed. It was a couple of days before we resumed bronchoscopies. And then the other thing we did is, of course, is we expanded our window of time and we were able to identify some more cases of that particular mycobacterium. And then with time, we got these environmental water results. And it turned out that it was not just mycobacterium mucogenica that we saw. It was actually another rapid growing mycobacterium, mycobacterium chelonii. And I think in the ice, it was just mucogenicum, but the ice machine water, which was in the same machine, was actually both mycobacterium. When we looked back, we also expanded our look to look at Mycobacterium cheloniae. And I think we identified about 15 cases over a six month period.
0: So, then how did you address those findings and what changes did you make in response to those findings? The other thing that happens when you
3: think you're experiencing an outbreak or would later become what we thought was a pseudo outbreak, it's important to call the laboratory as we did, but also to hold isolates. That becomes an important thing to do, especially if you get sampling later on and you want to try to do something further with this or further an investigation. Once we had these results, we also contacted our state health department. We obviously worked very well with them and we wanted to know whether or not they might be able to help us doing some sort of sampling and seeing whether or not we could do some molecular analysis. And they actually we were able to contact CDC. And so then we were actually able to work with both our state and our CDC partners. And eventually this got a little bit slowed down because of March of 2020 and all the things that happened around the pandemic. But eventually what happened is we were actually able to show that there was a molecular link based on PHGE, post gel 36, and whole genomic sequencing. And, and the whole genomic sequencing helped us identify two distinct clusters. There was the kind of the mucogenicum cluster and then there was a chelonii cluster. And, and in total, I think of the other of bronchial isolates that we had, I think we had a match of, of of about 12. So that was one piece of that. And that happened with time. But what we did for immediate sort of mitigation risk um, is we put point of use filters in our procedure sites. The ice machine, obviously the ice machine was put out of commission that was deep cleaned. And that was out for a bit and we had kind of adapt- went to sterilize for some time when sterilize we didn't really needed. But when the ice machine came back, the ice machines have a standard five micron filter and that's kind of for sediment and things like that. And then we also put a bacterial filter, which is a 0.2 micron. We put that on the ice machine. And then in terms of if sterile saline or sterile water was needed, there are many different ways to cool that down. One way was to just put the bottle in the bridge and then to pre-fill syringe bottles and then take them out when you need them. The other approaches are maybe putting the syringe in a Ziploc bag and putting that in some sort of cooling mechanism. We worked with our pulmonology partners on that, and there was some drift, as I mentioned initially, about feeling the need to have these sort of syringes for everybody, and clearly there was some drift on that. So I think we re-educated really thought about where this was needed and and tried to preserve those sterility of, of those sort of syringes. The other piece of this is, and initially it wasn't clear to us that these cultures you know, were not true pathogens. These are just probably colonizers and, or colonizers that happened really at the time that samples were being taken. Another strong component of this is patient outreach and involving your risk department and crafting a letter and letting people know and As you can imagine, try to explain this. It can be hard for patients to understand, but we're lucky that we really had engaged pulmonologists and we were able to talk to these patients and and let them know that we're going to kind of closely follow them and make sure that they don't have any evidence of infection. And we were able to follow these patients for some time, I think probably at least a year before we published our, our experiences.
0: Congratulations on the great investigative work and a successful intervention. I think you gave us a lot of great information, particularly about the importance of multidisciplinary collaboration on things like this and engaging everybody involved in the process. And certainly, you're not the only group to have encountered an outbreak or pseudo outbreak associated with bronchoscopy. In fact, just last month, we published a similar paper describing a pseudo outbreak of Mycobacterium lentiflavum attributed to contaminated tap water that was used for leak testing and other things during the bronchoscopy procedure. So you're certainly not alone in that regard. And maybe that's a good time to turn over to talk about Deepesh and um, Kieran's paper. You both have substantial experience with outbreak investigation through your work at CDC. And before we talk specifically about your experience with bronchoscope-related events, I think many of us would be interested to hear about the CDC Consultation Service for Healthcare-Associated Infection Outbreaks and how CDC comes to be involved in these investigations.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to answer that, Dave. So, in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at CDC, we're actually available 24-7 to assist our partners in investigation of these healthcare outbreaks and infection control breaches. And in the US, as Anu had pointed out, our local and state health departments are really some of our most critical frontline public health workers. And so we really rely on their skills and expertise to provide that immediate response to healthcare facilities and providers who are dealing with these healthcare outbreaks. In 2023, CDC is very fortunate that we're able to fund these healthcare associated infection programs in all 50 state health departments as well as a number of local health departments in US territories. And these HAIAR programs, as we call them, have really built enormous capacity to assist healthcare facilities in their jurisdictions with outbreaks, such as the one that Anu had encountered at his facility. But they also do know to reach out to us here at CDC when they do need that additional support and that technical assistance. So in this vein, our programs know that they can reach out directly to our team here at CDC for consultation at any time for any healthcare outbreak or infection control issue. And once we receive that request for assistance, and again, this request can range from help to answering just a simple technical question to requesting actual on-site assistance from a CDC team, we work with that health department and the facility to provide the support, either through phone calls, meetings, reviewing line lists, other data, and even, as Anu pointed out, laboratory support. And in a typical year, our program here at CDC we receive about over two hundred of these consultations. So again, we are available twenty four seven, and through this mechanism, have been lucky enough to hear about very wide range of interesting healthcare outbreaks.
0: Great, thank you. And perhaps very relevant to the topic of today's discussion, in this month's issue of Itchy, both the two of you as well as some of your colleagues published a summary of the findings from. The CDC-involved investigations of bronchoscope-associated outbreaks or pseudo-outbreaks. So what was the particular impetus for writing this paper and summarizing those data?
2: Yeah, thanks, Dave. So at the time leading up to when we began this study, we at CDC were receiving a lot of consults regarding bronchoscope-related outbreaks and pseudo-outbreaks. And so we wanted to better understand some common themes across these investigations and concerns potentially leading to transmission of the pathogens involved to better inform prevention and response strategies. Through writing this paper or when beginning this study, we sought to answer sort of a few major questions. One was, what was the volume of bronchoscope-related investigations that we were consulted on since 2014 and identified, and sort of what common associations between those investigations were identified? And then kind of branching off of that, so what were the other major features of these investigations based on what we had available from our database, including the microbiology, the epidemiology, routes of transmission, response or mitigation measures, And then what particularly was shared across these investigations in terms of sort of the relative frequency of the common themes that popped up? How common were they across these various
0: investigations? So it was a summary and analysis of the data that you had collected during those investigations. Exactly. So what did you learn from all those data you've been collecting over the years, which I think went from 2014 through September of 2022?
2: So the way we sort of approach trying to answer those questions is, like you said, Dave, we we looked at all the investigations related to bronchoscopy within our consultation database between July of 2014 and September 30th, 2022. And for each of those investigations, we reviewed what was documented and systematically abstracted on a variety of variables, including epi characteristics any and all possible sources of transmission that emerged from the investigation and any interventions that were deployed during the outbreak. And so kind of going back to our initial discussion about the definition of pseudo-outbreak and outbreak, for the definition of an outbreak, we used sort of a slightly different definition that kind of influenced what we interpreted as a pseudo-outbreak in particular. So we sort of focused the definition of outbreak as sort of a transmission based definition. And so in our study, we defined outbreak as a cluster of cases involving bronchoscopy where a pathogen was cultured from a patient sample and was responsible for either colonization or clinical infection in the patient. So that is to say the patient was truly harboring the bug in, inf- in question, whether or not it was ac- they were actually symptomatic from it. We also considered outbreaks scenarios where a pathogen might've been cultured from a bronchoscope. That was used on multiple patients, but no patient colonization or infection was necessarily identified. And then, in contrast, we define pseudo outbreaks as any cluster of cases where a pathogen was cultured from a patient sample, but the pathogen was believed to not have been introduced during specimen handling or processing. So, representing scenarios where there wasn't active transmission of a given pathogen from patient to patient. So in terms of what we found, we identified 26 investigations during that study period. Three were scenarios where bronchoscope reprocessing gaps were identified, but they weren't associated with isolation of any particular pathogen. Four were pseudo-outbreaks, based on that definition that I had mentioned. And then 19 were outbreaks. The median size of the outbreaks that we or pseudo-outbreaks we found. Was about six patients, but the range was quite broad from two to 31. Bacteria were the most commonly identified in just over three quarters of investigations. Fungi were the next common broad group of organisms in less than a quarter. And then viruses made up the vast minority and was found just in one investigation with adenovirus. And not surprisingly, within bacteria, NTMs were the most common pathogen identified. And just over 50% of all the patients we looked at across these investigations had an NTM infection or colonization. And then that was followed by environmental gram-negative bacilli as the second most common group of bacteria. In terms of common um, transmission routes that emerged, bronchoscope contamination due to bronchoscope reprocessing gaps was the most common, followed by exposure to Non sterile water, ice, or saline products. And uh, a little over a quarter of these investigations had more than one potential transmission route identified. So, just sort of highlighting that there are multiple things going on often that are leading to transmission in outbreaks like this. And then in terms of some interventions that we found, just to give a few examples of some common ones that were identified, adjustments to the scope reprocessing policies and practices. So utilizing sterile over tap water for pre-cleaning, for example, or as Anu was mentioning, sort of adjusting the, or examining the water quality and adding filters or, or things in place during the, in the scope reprocessing areas themselves. And then another theme is sort of stopping the use of any multi-use medication vials or pre-filling any sample collection tubes ahead of time. So essentially, any practices that might be sort of broad and not be specific to a particular procedure, and so having the potential to affect multiple patients. Other interventions were returning any damaged or contaminated bronchoscopes to the manufacturer, of course. And then from a systems perspective, retraining staff on proper bronchoscope reprocessing procedures and implementation or optimization of quality control practices.
0: That's, I think, a really useful description and gives us a better sense of the big picture of of how these things have been happening across the United States, at least. Are there any limitations from your investigation that we should all be aware of as we read it or hear you talk about it?
1: Yeah, and I'm happy to answer this one, Dave, because I think the limitations that are specific to this paper and this analysis are just generally applicable to, I think, any review that we do over consultations here at CDC. As I mentioned, we do over 200 consultations a year, but that really represents the tip of the iceberg of probably the outbreaks that are happening across healthcare facilities spanning the country. So the consults that we receive here at CDC for requests for assistance are primarily the records we keep are for tracking purposes. So in other words, we're keeping a record of these investigations to make sure that we're providing the appropriate and adequate amount of technical assistance to our partners and that we're having follow-up with our HIAR programs at the health department. So To reiterate, our record-keeping system's primary purpose is not for analyses. They're really to keep track of our responses. And so not all the data fields that we have are complete. They're not necessarily systematically collected across all consultations and investigations. But I will say, that being said, our database does include a very rich source of information on outbreak investigations and these infection control breaches that we do hear about. And so we found that conducting some of these descriptive analysis and delving into these investigations really helps offer some important clues and themes into common issues that we're seeing in healthcare outbreaks across the country, kind of giving a little bit of a bird's eye view. And we found, as Deepesh mentioned, that this can really help us inform and target some of our prevention efforts, whether through education, issuing guidance, or consideration to the healthcare community. Those are some limitations. But despite that, I think we were able to walk
0: away with some really important lessons learned. Totally. To your point about being the tip of the iceberg, I ran across an FDA safety communication from June of 2021. And they reported that between July 2015 and January of 2021, which is a shorter time period than your database. But during that five and a half year period or so, they had received 867 medical device reports related to infections or device contamination associated with flexible bronchoscopes. And I suspect that that also is pretty much a tip of the iceberg kind of phenomenon, because I suspect that many people wouldn't think to report those to the FDA, even though perhaps probably we should be, but I'm sure that doesn't always happen. But interestingly, they also found many of the same types of gaps that you found in yours in terms of things like device reprocessing, maintenance and mechanical issues as well. So I think more collaborate or um, corroboration of your findings and Anu's personal experience. So it seems like there's a lot to learn from both of your papers and from the discussion we've had so far. And first of all, I think it's apparent that we all need to be cognizant of the risk of bronchoscope-related infections and pseudo outbreaks or pseudo-infections but more specifically, are there things that we should be doing to identify these events if or when they occur in our facilities? It sounds like, under you were able to pick yours up fairly quickly, although in retrospect, there have been earlier cases that maybe didn't trigger detection. So what should we be doing differently to find these cases and these outbreaks?
3: One thing is, and this is always tricky, are there resources around surveillance, especially around sort of microbiologic cultures? You know, there's a lot of apps on the infection prevention departments and a lot of things going on. We're in respiratory season. Mm-hmm. I know we're dealing with all kinds of things along that front. But that being said is we actually, and many of those probably don't come towards CDC unless there's surveillance that's done. How is that done? I think you heard from both the patient and Karen in, in our experience that rapidly mycobacteria are, are a very common cause of this. That's something that we do do surveillance on. At least, you know, we look at positive AFB cultures from procedures that comes into our infection prevention department. We're not looking at those on a daily basis, like whether you look at those on a weekly or biweekly basis, that can be helpful. I think I would advocate for one thing around that is definitely you have to do some sort of surveillance. And the other thing that goes along with tracking is also going out to areas and talking about these issues. And I'm talking that one that it could happen, maybe that's sort of, I think like you've heard from both the patient care and you've you heard an emphasis on understanding the procedures and how they're done and how the processing is done and, and making sure that quality uh, control, maintenance logs, all those things are things are happening the way that they should be happening according to manufacturing instructions. But like with anything, you get drift and you need constant sort of auditing and education and making sure that the deeds
0: are happening. And of course, our goal isn't just to detect those events when they happen, but as you point out, to actually prevent them from happening so that there's nothing to detect. And I think we've heard from all of you about a lot of the important things that we should be doing from the prevention standpoint. And I think that's a great kind of segue into our closing question. So at the end of each episode of the podcast, we ask each participant to give our listeners a concrete recommendation of something they can do in the very near term, today or this week, to make their individual healthcare facilities safer. So with that in mind, my question for the three of you today is, what is one thing that we should all be doing to better assess or perhaps more importantly, even better reduce the risk of bronchoscopy-related infections or pseudo-outbreaks in our facilities? And maybe I'll ask Anu you to chime in first.
3: There's a lot of things that can be said about this, but I guess if I were to say one, prevention of pseudo outbreaks and outbreaks related to bronchoscopies, it, it's multidisciplinary. Let's take a field trip. Let's call you know, our engineering friends. Let's call our endoscopy folks and let them know, hey, we want to kind of come down and just sort of see the processes. Understand exactly how our bronchoscopes being made. what are the steps? How is high-level disinfection happening? are things happening that the way that they're sort of detailed are according to manufacturing instructions are the laws there. And then secondly, around that is actually talk to your pulmonologists who are going to be down there and understand you've heard a lot about these are waterborne and how does water exposure happen. And you heard our experience with an ice machine on the unit with things that we could have done differently, but that's actually not too uncommon actually when you see these outbreaks and pseudo outbreaks. So I would really try to Take a better understanding of how those products are being used. And it actually can vary by pulmonologists, by institution, by where your training occurred. And sometimes different individuals are doing different things. And even the nurses will tell you that. But if you take a field trip and it can be actually a fun field trip, I mean, it's good to get out of it's kind of, you know, maybe out of the day to day regular IP stuff. I think that that could be very informative. And also talk to them about our experiences, and, and really all the wealth of the data that both the patient and Kieran
0: reported. Dipesh, how about you?
2: In addition to the great point that Anu mentioned, I mean, I think nothing replaces sort of direct observation of practices, and it's something we always try to do when we're also called to the field from CDC to investigate these sort of outbreak investigations. I think my point I'd like to stress is sort of the thinking of encouraging folks to think about how we can further reduce exposure to non-sterile water and ice during the bronchoscopy process. And this includes sort of the reprocessing stage or pre-procedure, during procedure, and then after procedure, as well as the sampling, collection, transport type elements of the process. So universally, sort of within every step of the sequence, sort of where could tap water be introduced and are there alternatives? Can we use any non-sterile alternatives during those? I think on initial thought, it may not, like from a patient care perspective, seem to be a huge concern since bronchoscopy is not a sterile procedure, but I think it's worth recognizing that it it still is invasive by way of biopsies that occur during the procedure. And so pathogens that are harbored in non-sterile water and ice can still be introduced to a patient and lead to further transmission. And So thinking about more opportunities to limit exposure to non-sterile ice and water, I think can go a long way in sort of mitigating transmission and preventing outbreaks and pseudo outbreaks. Thanks, Dipesh. Kirat?
1: Yeah, just tying in to what Anu and Deepesh said, I think facilities should take a close look at their policies and procedures around bronchoscopy from start to finish and make sure that the actual IPC and infection control activities are in line with those policies and procedures and talking to those specific healthcare staff that are responsible for each of those points along the way, and that they understand their role. I totally agree with talking to your pulmonologists, ask those very specific questions. They all have their specific nuanced ways of performing their bronchoscopies that you may not even be aware of. And I would say, finally, share this podcast with them. Hopefully, it'll be uh, really helpful.
0: Well, thanks. I think those were all very helpful suggestions and very good homework for all of us to do after we finish listening to this podcast. So thanks to all of you for speaking with us today about your work and this important topic. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy, And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast.